This is Apophony of Turnips, and I'm your host, Maureen. And I'm Quinn. So I've spent the last two weeks researching this painting by John Mallard William Turner for fun, because I need help. It's all I've talked about, and none of my friends like me anymore. But I always find whenever I go to a museum, um, I'm looking at a painting, and I want to just know more about that one painting, and I end up finding all this stuff that's completely unrelated or just tangentially related, doesn't really have much to do with what I'm interested in. So what I wanted was to make episodes that reflect the depth and the broad scope of what I wanted out of art history for people like me who don't have a background in art or history. So we are starting this week's episode entitled The Fighting Temeraire, Nostalgia in the Age of Technology with John Mallard William Turner's painting, The Fighting Temeraire, Tugged to Her Last Birth to be Broken Up. All right. So, let's go back. Okay. All the way back. We'll get in our little time machine. Um, to, <laughs> to 1838. I'm here so far. You're here? Good. Do you have all your parts? Uh, am I allowed to show them my iPhone? Or does that break the rules? No. No. Hello. Have you not seen anything time travel ever? No phones, no technology. We're doing this. All right. Okay, so here we are in London in 1838. I look good in my whatever they wore in 1838. Uh, John Mallard William Turner was painting. But before that, let's talk about John's life. We'll call him John. We're friends with John, right? Yeah, first name basis. Good stuff. We're on a first name basis. We're not going to call him J.M.W. Turner. That's too many <laughs> letters. And if we call him Turner, like, he could be anybody. You know, he could be a classic movie channel. Who knows? <laughs> so he lived in England. He was born and raised in England. He spent so much of his life traveling. That's actually what most of his landscapes are based on. And he really gravitated towards um, landscapes and architectural paintings, whereas what was happening at the time was a lot more portraiture and other things. So already he's kind of gaining this this reputation as someone who breaks apart from the pack with his landscapes, which are defying linear perspective, which is something he gets into later on in his life. So when he's very young, he's 11 years old, and he starts copying architectural drawings, the blueprints for buildings around him. And he starts coloring in these ancient engravings um, to get a sense of color and style. And he actually begins painting landscapes in watercolor. So that's just, those are the first landscapes that he ever painted. So he went on to study at the Royal Academy, which was the biggest art institution in England at the time, and eventually became a professor of perspective where he was considered a brilliant artist and a brilliant painter and probably the worst professor ever. <laughs> that sounds that sounds about right for a university professor, honestly. <laughs> he really struggled. I read multiple accounts of people who either read his lectures later or were at his lectures and recorded them that he just did not speak clearly. He's often described as having a Cockney accent. Um, which made him difficult to understand. He was circular, but he did have these incredible visual guides that really illustrated his points that he couldn't make because he did not speak well. Right, so being a good artist does not necessarily make you a good speaker. Right, so he really struggled with that in communication, so he found his art to be his method of communication. Um, he actually encountered a lot of criticism from his contemporaries for every painting that he did, except for this one, <laughs> the particular painting that we're speaking about. But he was considered in his time to be a fraud, quite honestly. Interestingly, so he, he studied at the academy, he taught at the academy, and then when he grew older and he really started to distance himself from the academy, which 
was almost unheard of hmm. because England itself was engaged. I was going to say as we know, but I didn't know until I started this. So it's not, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I did. It was engaged in the Napoleonic Wars, um, which isolated the country and really cut them all off from travel, which was something that up to that point Turner had been really involved in. He was all over the world, but because of the wars, he was unable to get to certain countries. Like he didn't go to Italy until he was 44, but he'd painted by then dozens and dozens of scenes of Venice and Rome based on narratives he had heard and other people who had been. So he was really developing his own style in a vacuum. So this deviation from the academy came almost out of nowhere, which is what makes Turner like one of the most revolutionary painters of his time, because he's taking from the Renaissance, he's taking these ideas of perfected perception and perspective, these linear mathematical ideas of perspective, and finding new ways to detail the same thing, finding new ways to draw the eye and create what is up close blobs of color and from far away, very obviously a ship. I was fortunate myself to actually see this painting when I was in London a few months ago, and it's so arresting in person to see the colors and the way that all the strokes come together, the way that the paint literally hangs off the canvas. But never mind, we'll get to that later on in the podcast. I'm not particularly well-versed in art and art history. That's kind of why I'm here, to be the idiot. But something about impressionistic painting does always stand out to me, where it's... I can't really imagine how they did it, because you you walk up to it, and from up close, which is where they're painting from, it looks like nothing. Like, I always imagine they're painting it with, like, an 11-foot-long brush just to be able to see what's going to come out at the end. Sure. Continuing with Turner, people were closely tying him with the Romantics, capital R, of this period in England. So you have Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, they're all writing about this mystical realism that has a tinge of this elevation, you know, Coleridge was high all the time, <laughs> if we're going to be frank. And he spent a lot of time opium. writing. Yeah, it was opium. It's always opium, all right? It's always opium. It's always opium. But Wordsworth was talking about going into the woods and clouds were talking to him <laughs> and Coleridge was talking about these weird dreams he had about Genghis Khan. So it's all this like elevation of the reality into the supernatural, the magic in life and breathing the ethereal into the real. One of the many reasons the Academy didn't like Turner was his play with light, his use of color, and his lack of chiaroscuro. Hopping in is the idiot here. What's uh, what's chiaroscuro? So chiaroscuro is the practice developed by the old masters of the Renaissance of light and dark. It creates a depth and a shading that helps with perspective, apart from just foreshortening and the linear perspective techniques. It's like shading. So the use of grays and browns and blacks to create depth and movement. Okay, interesting. All right. So what Turner did was instead of using these blacks and browns and grays, he actually used different variations in other colors. So he would use like a darker yellow instead of using a black. And people felt that that was sacrilegious coming out of the Renaissance after everything had just been reinvented to change the game again, especially when everyone is subscribing so closely to this theory of the Academy. Interesting. So there was this establishment that he was going against, and even though they just entered a movement that was about throwing everything on its head, they were like, okay, we threw everything on its head, but let's keep it here now. I mean, keep in mind, just entered 300 years ago. 
That's that's a good point. Okay, yes. That that is the thing about our history is like it seems to us like they just entered, but like for them, it's you know older than the country of America. Right, like Turner's Turner's grandfather probably wasn't even born by the time the Renaissance started. Exactly. I'm not going to pretend that's something that I sourced. That's just a... That's a math thing. Yeah. So, of his many critics, he was constantly ridiculed by William Thackeray, who you may know as the author of Vanity Fair. And he actually... I, I read so many articles, so many articles about this painting, about other paintings that Turner did, and... This was the line that was quoted the most, and it always made me laugh. This is what Thackeray thought of all of Turner's paintings. Oh ye gods, why will he not stick to copying nature's majestical countenance instead of daubing it with some absurd antics and fard of his own? <laughs> um, which is from Thackeray's second lecture. He's not a nice dude. That's some really He's good... not a nice guy. That's some really good, like, Renaissance era... It's a pretty good Victorian disc. It is. So, Turner didn't always paint with this impressionistic style. He started hmm. out with a much more linear academic style, and his break was actually attributed frequently to madness or senility, as opposed to what contemporary critics think, which is, you know, that he was expanding on the practices that he knew and broadening out of the conventional into the innovative. So many critics have interpreted his paintings with a political slant. Um, one of the paintings that I read about in the process of my research for this podcast was about his painting Plowing Up Turnips near Slough. And it talked about the Enclosures Act, um, which I'm not going to get into right now, but it's really interesting and has a lot to do with politics in England. So if you're interested, you should definitely look that up. It actually affected a lot of the literature of the time and had a great impact on art as well as the politics of the 1800s in England. So it's interesting because that particular painting and a few other of his paintings, the one that we're going to speak about momentarily in particular, he writes a lot about a retrospective, a nostalgia, this uh, hesitance toward change, and a resistance to breaking with traditional practices in agriculture, industry, and architecture, huh. which is hilarious considering all he did was invert everything that he learned and go against every single rule that was set down. But when it comes to, like, politics or technology, like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> but, like, painting, I'm an innovator. You got to pick your battles. I suppose. So while many of Turner's works, in fact, most of Turner's works, were not well-received within his lifetime, this painting that we're going to be speaking about, which I'm going to shorten the full name to The Fighting Temeraire because otherwise it's too long and I can't remember all of it. The Fighting Temeraire was widely considered to be his greatest work and is actually no longer considered to be his greatest work. I mean, it's, it's a cool painting, but it's not as deep as some of his other works definitely are. That is John Mallard William Turner. So let's place him in the context of what's going on in England right now. Okay. Not right now. <laughs> in 1838. At his time. I don't know what's going on in England right now. I was just there. I should know. But I don't. So whatever. So, Turner's break from the Academy comes at a unique time in English history. You know, Queen Victoria is the queen, but it's already a constitutional monarchy. You've got the Napoleonic Wars, which is isolating the country. You have the Enclosures Act, which is making larger farms more profitable and smaller farms less profitable. Stepping on the small businessman, nothing new. Yeah, exactly. So, criticism is on the rise. Art criticism, literary criticism, theater criticism... With the rapid expansion of the exhibition systems, like museums and galleries, 
and the art market is rapidly growing and periodical publication is becoming uh, very popular. So people are writing about, talking about, and viewing art more than they ever have before. So Turner's works are really getting a more critical eye than they have in the past. Okay. Which also allows for the middle class to enter into a national conversation about and even a global conversation about art for the first time, which is really interesting. They're already starting to marginalize the middle class, and now you're seeing the middle class finally being able to be engaged in these conversations. And as we've seen in the past in history, when the middle class or the poor people get involved in national conversations that were previously not for them, things go really interestingly. Yeah, usually that leads to everything changing because there's a lot more of those people than there are the upper class people. Precisely. So just like you saw with, you know, the invention of the Gutenberg Bible and the translation of the Bible into English, not English, into German, and the popularization of religion for the masses, a similar thing is taking place with art criticism. Hmm. So now everybody and their mother has an opinion about John Mallard William Turner. (laughs) Just like today. (laughs) That is true. Just like the popularization of periodicals, the internet means everybody has an opinion. So Sir George Beaumont, one of these many people with an opinion, was talking about the lack of chiaroscuro in Turner's works, and he asserted that a good picture, like a good fiddle, must be brown. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of stupid. But in all these paintings... The varnish that they used over it had darkened, as we discussed, because it's been 300 years and they haven't figured out art restoration yet. So they would look at a painting from Poussin or someone and it would be brown, even if that wasn't necessarily the original color that it was painted to be because age and time and stuff. So interestingly, the age of the previous paintings that they were basing their opinions on also had to do with the way that they viewed Turner. Okay. Okay. So, Quinn, because I have no interest in war and have a very hard time talking about it in any way that's interesting to anyone, including myself, could you talk a little bit about the Temeraire? Sure. Yeah. So so he chose to, to paint the Temeraire because it was a particularly significant symbol in British history at the time. And the reason for that was because of its its actions in the Battle of Trafalgar. The ship had been commissioned well before the Battle of Trafalgar, but that's kind of where it made its name for itself and became this symbol of the indomitable British military. Well, the indomitable British Navy. Even Britain never thought they had an indomitable military. (laughs) What, the only war that Britain has won is the ones they haven't engaged in? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know. But, but, for a long time, they did have the most powerful navy in the world, and that's something that they prided themselves on. Which, like, when you're an island nation, I suppose that really makes sense. So, at the Battle of Trafalgar, you have to keep in mind that all the ships involved here are these gigantic wooden constructions with, you know, big sets of flapping white sails and everything like that. Rows and rows and rows of cannons along the side, because those things aren't accurate, so the only way that you actually hit anything at sea is by firing, like... 30 cannonballs at a time, and so you kind of point the side of your ship in the general direction of the thing that you want gone, and you tell all of your people to pull the trigger, and yeah, maybe eventually something will happen. (laughs) So this battle is happening. Nothing, it was super effective. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So there's these two lines of ships going at each other. There's the French against the English, and the Temeraire is just to the side of the HMS Victory, which is the flagship of the British Navy at the time. 
and they're getting closer and closer, and they're getting within firing range, and because the ships can only really fire sideways, these ships are getting really, really close to each other before the combat actually starts, because they have to be facing towards a thing to move at it, but they have to be facing to the side to shoot at it. So, like, these two lines of ships just kind of converge, which means that there's, like, hundreds and hundreds of cannons that start to go off all at once. It is absolute chaos. And that's how these naval engagements always go. The people here are trained for this sort of thing. So the Temeraire, uh, in its initial pass, nothing, nothing super significant happens to them. But when they get a little bit past it, there's a French ship on the other side, and they see the French ship raising their cannons at it and about to fire. Uh, and the French ship does get off uh, a volley that does some damage to the Temeraire, but then the Temeraire, in response, rams into that ship lashes themselves to it and starts unloading their cannons at point-blank range into the side of it. That just seems suicidal. That's the thing, is that, like, because these things are so inaccurate, the only way to make sure that you're going to do maximum damage is to be basically touching them with your cannons when those cannons fire. And so, knowing that they were kind of at a disadvantage there, and another thing with cannons is that they take a long time to reload, so the ship that they ran into fired all of their cannons from range, not doing quite as much as they could have, so the Temeraire rams into them, lashes themselves to it, fires all of their cannons, and just shreds that ship. Shreds it to pieces. Uh, but because they are latched to it, a lot of people on that ship are able to get over onto the Temeraire. You know, like, they kind of jump ship, and the an engagement breaks out on the deck of the Temeraire. Uh, like, hand-to-hand combat, sabers, everything like that. Uh, while all of this is happening... A second ship, a second French ship, pulls up alongside the Temeraire. So the Temeraire is fighting a battle on their own deck, and they have a French ship about to open fire at them on the other side. And at this point, if nothing else had happened, the Temeraire would just be doomed. But the HMS Victory, the one that I mentioned before, the flagship, sees this happening and pulls up alongside the French ship on the other side from the Temeraire. And the Temeraire and the Victory both unload their cannons, the Temeraire, you know, has two sides of cannons. They fired their left side first, and now they're firing their right side, so they didn't have to reload in between. Mm-hmm. And the Victory and the Temeraire unload on this second ship and shred them as well. And in a battle like this, where everything is so, in general, kind of random, and it's really hard to control, like, what you actually accomplish in a fight, the fact that the Temeraire was able to take out two ships almost by itself and engage in a battle on its own and be boarded and survive that. It gave it a certain reputation even in the battle, but that wasn't quite enough to justify it going down in British history as a symbol of their military. But what ended up happening that did bring that about was not any further conflict, actually. From that point on, the Temeraire... Right. Uh, nothing super exciting happened to the Temeraire, but because it was so heavily damaged, on their way back to England, they... Well, they returned 11 days later, right? Yeah, so it took them 11 days to get back to England, and there was a storm, or several storms between them and England. So during storms, uh, the Temeraire would start to take on water. Like, if the waves were particularly high, they would splash into holes in the side of the ship, and it would start to take on a lot of water, and they'd have to be bailing it out. And so... They were being towed by other less damaged English ships. And one of the ships that they were being towed by happened to be... Oh, I should mention that the HMS Victory came under other attacks after that, and the the Vice Admiral of the Navy at that time was actually killed in one of those attacks. 
So he was in action. It was Nelson, right? Yes, that was that was Admiral Nelson. Uh, but so he was replaced in combat because you have to have a chain of command even in the middle of combat by a guy named Cuthbert Collingwood, which is just like the most English name ever. A horrible it's, name. It's really it's very British. <laughs> horrible, horrible. And and Collingwood had uh, it was known around the troops that he had kind of a flair for the dramatic. And when uh, the captain of the Temeraire. So they, they were being towed by the, the ship that Collingwood was on. And so uh, the, the captain of the Temeraire took that opportunity to go over and talk to the vice admiral for a while and talk about the battle. Sure. And he recounted exactly what had happened you know, with that engagement with those two French ships and the victory. And Collingwood saw something in that that he thought you know represented the spirit of the British Navy. And so he... He started this almost this fiction about the Temeraire in his head about how fantastic it was and how well it had done in that battle. And it did do well, but, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a legendary performance or anything like that. But when he got back to England, he was, you know, a significant figure. If you imagine a bunch of people getting off a ship and, you know, a bunch of like paparazzi and reporters around, like that's kind of what was happening just with fewer camera flashes. He would be the first person that the reporters would go to for comment. Mm -hmm. So when he gets back to shore and is interviewed by, by the largest newspaper in England, he gives this quote. He lies. Uh, Yeah. He, he, we'll, we'll see. A circumstance occurred during the action, which so strongly marks the invincible spirit of British seamen when engaging the enemies of the country, that I cannot resist the pleasure I have in making it known to their lordships. The Temeraire was boarded by accident or design by a French ship on one side and a Spaniard on the other. The contest was vigorous, but in the end, the combined ensigns were torn from the poop and the British hoisted in their places. So he gives this very dramatic retelling of of the events of the battle. It's picked up by the British newspaper. It's It's distributed everywhere, and the Temeraire are the heroes of this engagement. Uh, You know, it doesn't mention that the second ship, if they hadn't been helped by the HMS victory, the Temeraire would have just died, which is, it's fine. Like, this is not, this doesn't change history in any way or anything like that, but this is the reason why the Temeraire is important to England and why it was in the cultural consciousness enough for Turner to decide to paint it. Um, So after... She went back, she was repaired, and then she did some small naval things for a while, but nothing really significant. Um, She was converted into a prison ship for going repairs in 1813, and then was eventually sold in 1838 when she returned to the Thames to be broken up, which is exactly what Turner is painting, to make way for newer technologies like the steamship. So one of the most interesting things about this painting is if you you look at the, the ship itself, it's new, all of her masts are standing straight and erect, everything looks whole, which is frankly not the case. Uh, when she was eventually pulled back into the harbor in 1838, Turner was actually not there to witness the return of the fighting Temeraire. Often referred to as the saucy Temeraire? Right. Uh, the, Weirdly? The idea that uh, its own crew referred to it as the fighting Temeraire was actually wrong. They referred to it as the saucy Temeraire. I can see why. You know, we have a little bit of revisionist history going on there, but it was the saucy Temeraire, so... Yeah, revision, the revision is better. So, the ship stands um, a proud beacon of hope of the national identity of England, which is not really what she actually looked like. She was much more beaten and worn down after years of combat and serving as a prison ship, where she basically just hung out offshore 
and did nothing. So the painting actually reflects this idea, and it depends on how you, you really want to look at it. So she's a symbol of national pride, and in reality, the nation turned its back on her until they needed her again. Um, and he paints her in the same way that she would have looked when she was the pride of this nation, as opposed to the reality of her. So it's this idealistic version of um, the Temeraire, which, you know, the contemporary critics took with all sincerity that he was making a statement about the pride of England. Okay. But when you view it through this lens of the skewed perspectives, the experimenting with oil paints and palettes, I mean, Turner, he didn't mix his colors in the palette. He mixed them on the canvas, which you can really see in the purity of the color that he gets and in the way that it really, it sits on top of each other. And if you were to stand in front of this painting, as I've been so fortunate to do in the National Gallery in Britain, it's, it's inches off the canvas. You know, really, it's, it's a physical painting. It's, it's a being. It's, a, it's definitely a three-dimensional object. Sure. I want to talk a little bit about how I feel about this painting and what I, what I see in it, and also what I've read that other people see in it, because we all care a little bit more about what they think than what I think. But hey, so if you're looking at the painting... And you understand composition, which is the way that the figures are composed together in the painting. So we, we're going to say that the Temeraire, that this ship, is the main focus of the painting. And were this a traditional painting painted in the Renaissance or the Baroque period or the Rococo or literally any other period up until this point, she would be to the right, directly in the center of the painting, being the focus of the narrative. So if you actually look directly in the center of the painting... It's almost like there's a buoy there, and there's another ship in the background. And then also the second... Well, there were actually two tugboats that brought her into the harbor, but Turner only paints one. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And then off to the far right, you see the sun setting. When we could say, you know, it's the sun setting on this broad strokes nationalism. You know, England turned her back on the Temeraire, hmm. and... With it coming back into the harbor to be broken up, you could say it's, you know, the end of her career. Or you could also say it's the end of England, the end of an era of supremacy, of national pride. Right. This was the age where the sun did not set on the British Empire. And at that point, the accuracy of that was not long for this world. Sure. Also, I mean, you could read into it that you could read pretty far, but you could read into it that Turner's, again, commenting on this idea of the academy. You know, one of the reasons that Britain was so committed to this academy is because it was such a strong part of their national identity. So if the sun is setting on the Temeraire, which represents England itself, then the sun is also setting on the academy and these traditions, and it's making way for steam power and technology and all these things that he's actually, frankly, right. pretty hard set against in some of his other works, if you agree with the critics that I read. Interesting. So this this is actually a significant political commentary in a painting, or at least it could be seen that way. All paintings are significant political commentaries. Okay. So he's talking about a wariness of technological advances, which is so interesting to me <laughs> when he's out there being an innovator. Yeah. I'm not sure I agree with that particular piece of criticism. My own personal feelings on this this painting... Turner painted this painting in his, his mid-50s. He died 20 years later in his 70s. And he was, you know, as I said, his style changes were off, frequently attributed to senility or madness. And to me, this painting represents himself. 
like idealizing his younger self coming into the harbor to be taken home, to be recognized after years of dealing with this criticism, this torture. And, you know, everyone looked at him when he was at the Royal Academy as this really talented painter. And then everyone turned against him in the same way that everyone looked at the Temeraire and was like, oh, it's a great ship. It's so cool. It did all this cool stuff. And then they turned around and were like, nah, you can be a prison ship, I guess. Now we're just going to break you up. Yeah, to me, it's more a personal reflection on his own identity in comparison with the national identity. That's really interesting. So the way that Turner creates perspective is really interesting. He, he uses something that's called the vortex perspective, which can be seen most clearly in his painting, a steamboat off a harbor's mouth making signals in shallow water and going by the lead, which is painted in 1842. I wonder what the subject matter of that painting was. I don't know why his titles are so long. <laughs> in fact, someone actually, I, I forget who I, I laughed at it and made a note, but I didn't write it down in my notes for this podcast. But someone actually accused him of doing word pictures as opposed to picture pictures. That's, that's pretty great. Yeah. So what he does is he creates this, this vortex um, and everything that's caught up in the vortex then seems like it's pushed further out, creating depth, which is Honestly, the coolest thing to read about and then go back and look at the painting. So you can kind of see, particularly if you're looking at the, the right-hand corner of the painting and the sunset, so um, you can kind of see the effects of like a spiral in the brushwork. And it's just, it's not a linear perspective. He, he's not using the typified mathematical perspective. He's really playing with this idea of like, if something's at the center of something, it's pushed further back. So it's like this section looks further back because it's smaller. And there's some foreshortening of the boats. Which has to be really interesting coming from him specifically because he was, you know, he was a professor of artistic perspective at the university. So it's almost... Which you would think would make people go, oh, look, he's taking what he knows and making it different instead of saying, wow, he's a total hack with no talent. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But you'd be wrong. So we talked a little bit about the colors that Turner utilizes, and you're really not getting the full effect from Google Images, though I wish you were. But the yellows, the blues, the reds, those really hadn't been used in that way previously. You know, you look at something like a Veronese, who's really getting into fabrics and the richness but you're still not quite getting that color, which comes from not really mixing his paints until he gets to the canvas and then just layering it on top. Right. And it, it does lead to this beautiful effect where he's not just painting the colors that things actually were. He's painting the colors that you see at late sunset when everything has this like orange, yellow, red, purplish hue to it. You know, it's it's the light that all these objects are reflecting isn't clear sunlight you know it's it's this heavy very colorful light that just impacts everything and he's not just drawing the original colors and then like putting a filter over them or anything like that he's creating that and you can really really see it and it's everything is more intense than reality and all the colors in the painting just remind me of a gorgeous sunset right so he was actually accused of painting inside of a kaleidoscope um, which Turner thought was kind of amusing considering he knew the guy who invented the kaleidoscope, whatever, no big deal. <laughs> but it's this use of, and this is a quote from Magnificent or Mad, it's in the Victoria Periodicals Review, fall of 1996. It's this idea of the unstable color structuring and to see the unstable image as real. So all of these fragments, these short, choppy brush strokes, these 
impossibly thick layers of paint. They, they destabilize the image. But the further away you step and the longer you squint at it, the more you can see and the more clear it becomes. In the water of some of his other paintings, he has ghosts, which you would you almost don't ever see them in a reproduction. You know, I've, I've seen reproductions of them many, many times. And until I was standing in front of it, I never saw the ghosts in the water. I mean, you can see their longing. It's really fascinating what he's able to do with paint and perspective. And it's it's really amazing and worthwhile yeah yeah it's uh it's something that i would love to be able to see in person it sounds like there's a lot to it a lot to it that that really shows what exactly a painting has to bring to the table over a static image right so the long and the short is that turner is really cool and you should head to the national gallery in london and see this painting for yourself and if you would like to look into any of these things on your own you can reach out to me, and I will send you some of the crazy articles that I read for this podcast, which were hilarious, and one of them was entitled, In the Eye of the Storm, Images of Space-Time in Turner and Poe. Um, there's still a lot more to dig into here, but we only have so much time. So thank you for listening, and we hope we'll catch you next week when we talk about Ingre and the Odalisque and Oriental. So thanks so much, guys. Awesome. See you next week. <laughs>